1: How can we tell who's penetrating if no one is penetrated at all with a dick? How do we know?
0: She comes to you at night, in the depths of it, when the moon is high, when everyone else in the house is asleep. She slips into your bed and into your arms, and your passion ignites the bedclothes. Sometimes you think if love was fire, if sex was felt outside your skin as it is within, then together you'd have burned this whole town to ash. Your husband, her brother, is gone to war. He has been gone for years. So has her husband been gone, and she came back to live under her parents' roof with you. You think perhaps it started because the both of you were lonely. You can barely remember your husband's face now. Sometimes you wish he wouldn't return. And you can continue like this, with his dark-haired sister. In the daytime, the two of you keep your silence. Under the eye of your mother and father-in-law, nobody suspects. You keep silent and apart from her, cool and reserved, friendly but not too much. But your eyes follow her around every corner. You watch the way her dark curls sway to her waist. When she lifts the thick mass off her neck in this heat, your eyes go to her tanned throat. And you know that her eyes follow you. You are fair where she is dark, your hair the color of clover honey, a scattering of freckles across your nose. She calls them constellations, finds gods and goddesses among them in the light just before the dawn, the two of you naked and wound about in the sheets, after desire is quenched. There is no name for this. For men who love other men, there are stories, epic myths and heroes. Their love is lionized, yours is erased. You can find no trace of it mythology or history. There are no lover's tales, no maps. You believe you are the only ones who have ever thought of it. You have invented a new kind of love. How long until they find out what the two of you are up to? And what will happen when they do? The days are always long, the nights never come soon enough. You wait until your husband's parents go to bed, your father-in-law in his cups, Your eyes meet hers across the table and then you retire to your rooms, always yours as hers are too close to her parents. You wait alone for a long time, long enough for the lamps to burn out. And then you hear the soft footsteps on the landing, the scrape of her knuckles against the door. You rise with your heart in your throat, your face flushed with heat, it is always like the first time. You will let her into your room and into your bed and the two of you will write your own story. Maybe someday. Others will remember this story even in another time. I'm Jenny Williamson.
1: And I'm Jen McManamy.
0: And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We're calling this series Gender Rebels of the Ancient World because how could we do a season about sex and sex magic without talking about the culture of sex and the magical provenance of those who fell outside the accepted binary? We're starting our series on gender rebels with a look at queer women. This is mainly applicable to cisgender women, Of course, transgender women also existed. We are going to be talking about them in more detail in their own episode, because it turns out this is a really deep and complicated topic. We are talking mainly about cisgender women here, because the way that the Greeks and Romans saw sex centered cisgender as the dominant paradigm. So we will get to transgender women and men next week. But cisgender women who loved other women were also gender rebels in the ancient world. They challenged the gender binary in some of the most basic and fundamental ways, ways that the ancient Greeks and Romans found profoundly destabilizing, so destabilizing that they had to erase stories of women loving other women completely from their history and their lexicon. To understand why they found it so destabilizing, we have to delve into how Greeks and Romans understood heterosexuality and what binary they were bound to because it wasn't the same as ours.
1: Most of the time, when people talk about queer love in ancient Greece, they're talking about men. In ancient Greece, male couples were extremely visible. They were everywhere. There are men loving men. Actually, mostly, it was men loving boys. In the myths, on the attic vases, in the murals, in the statuary, in the history. Think about it. Achilles and Patroclus. Hadrian and Antinous. Male homoerotic love was idealized, lionized and said to be the purest and best kind of love. Far better, objectively, than heterosexual relationships. But what about queer women? Where were they? What did the ancient Greeks think about them? Why aren't they on the vases and in the myths and statues and history? Sometimes, with the notable exception of Sappho, it can feel like queer women just weren't there.
0: But they were there. Of course they were there. As long as there's been sex, there have been women getting it on with women. Queer women in ancient Greece and Rome were largely invisible in a lot of ways, and that's tied into how the Greeks and Romans thought about sex, defined it, and who got to tell the stories. But queer women are there if you know where to look. In our last episode, we looked at the life of Sappho with Lisa Charlotte from Sweet Bitter. Today, we wanted to look beyond the life of Sappho and delve into the other evidence that queer women were living and loving all over ancient Greece, right under the noses of their curios.
1: To talk about why queer women were so invisible in ancient Greece and going on to ancient Rome, it's helpful to take a look at how these people viewed sex in the first place and what sex was. And that means we're going to have to take a side trip into love between queer men and how it was viewed. It wasn't the way we think about it.
0: The binary that was important was different in ancient Greece and Rome, and that's why it's so important to talk about this.
1: So according to some theories, the ancient Greeks and the Romans after them didn't really define sex and sexual orientation based on the gender of the participants. They didn't see people as gay or lesbian or straight or queer, which isn't to say that people who were only attracted to the same or a different gender didn't exist, because of course they did. It's just that they didn't use the gender of the people they were attracted to to define their sexuality. For them, it wasn't about whether they slept with people of the same or opposite gender. It was about whether they played the active or passive role in sex, and those are both in air quotes, because the ancient Greeks and Romans saw sex as less about mutual pleasure and consent and more about dominance.
0: The important dichotomy here wasn't man and woman or man and man or woman and woman so much as it was dominant and submissive. The person doing the penetrating was seen as the person dominating that sexual interaction. And the person being penetrated, the penetratee, was seen as the submissive partner. I mean, of course, we know that that is not true. You can be both penetrator or penetrated and be either dominant or submissive. But this is just how they saw it.
1: They did not view sex the same way we view sex.
0: Yeah. To them, penetration was the defining factor of sex. That's what makes sex sex to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Somebody, in other words, had to have a dick for it to be considered sex at all. And that's not to say that people didn't penetrate without a dick, like with fingers or a dildo. But the way they saw it, they would have seen that as unnatural and not, like, natural sex. So according to this theory, you were either the penetrator or the penetratee. I'm going to say penetrator and penetratee so much in this episode. (laughs) The woman in a hetero relationship was always assumed to be the penetratee because of her gender. In male relationships, one man was the passive participant, the penetratee, and the other was the active penetrator.
1: Homoerotic love between men was heavily idealized and even encouraged in ancient Greece. But usually it was not between adult men of equal status. Usually it was between adult men and boys or young adolescents, starting around the age of 12 to 14 and ending when the boys started to grow a man's facial hair, so around 18 to 20 approximately. In these relationships, there was a very clear dominant or active partner and a very clear passive one. These were rastes or romanos or lover-beloved relationships, and they were almost a rite of passage for upper-class boys in classical Athens and some other areas of ancient Greece. Apparently, this practice was very ancient and had its roots in Archaic Greece's tribal past.
0: The Erastes and Aramunos pairing was very formalized. There were specific courtship rituals. The older man was supposed to pursue and seduce, quote unquote, which basically means groom. And the boy was supposed to demur for a while before giving in. Theoretically, he also had the ability to say no and have his consent honored, but there are all kinds of problems with that, because this situation is already extremely coercive and abusive, there's an inappropriate power dynamic here, and also kids can't consent. From a modern lens, we can't really consider this to be true consent. We talk about the dynamics of this in further detail on our Patreon. We have an episode about Hadrian and Antinous that really goes into detail about the Erastes-Aromanos dynamic. So, we're not going to talk about it too much in this episode, but the takeaway here is that the Erastes and Araminos pairing, like hetero pairings, were seen as having an automatic, dominant, and passive partner. The Araminos, the boy, was supposed to act and be passive. He was not supposed to pursue. Dominance and submissiveness was also supposed to be reflected in social status between a couple. The dominant partner, the masculine partner, quote-unquote, because those were associated to them, was ideally of a higher social class. He was an adult, whereas the passive role was reserved for boys of a lower social status, younger age, and a more feminine-presenting demeanor. And Erastes and Romano's relationships fully preserved those expectations and rules. So to the ancient Greeks, these were kind of heteronormative? Relationships, in a way, you know, because they preserved that dominant passive dynamic.
1: And this isn't to say that male same sex relationships between more equal adults didn't happen.
0: They did.
1: But the ancient Greeks and Romans largely thought these relationships were shameful and perverse, especially for the penetratee in the relationship. This was kind of the worst thing a man in ancient Greece or Rome could say about another man that he took the passive role in sex. That doesn't mean that those relationships weren't always seen as positive, however. Some historians point to Achilles and Patroclus as a depiction of two adult men who were in a relationship. But this relationship may have been seen as subversive, even to classical Greeks. It subverted that heteronormative dominant passive paradigm. It was, in other words, very queer.
0: Queer to the ancient Greeks, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah, which is so interesting because it's one of the more healthy relationships we see in Greek mythology.
0: <laughs> I mean, by ancient Greek standards, I'm not 100% sure if I went back into the Iliad, I wouldn't find all kinds of problematic stuff about it. But I think that there's something to that there. And one of those things is that Achilles and Patroclus are kind of on a more equal footing than you usually see.
1: So on the one hand, Achilles was seen as the dominant one because he was this fierce, badass warrior. But on the other He's also described as beautiful and kind of feminine, presenting in his beauty. He convincingly disguised himself as a girl at one point in the, um, I don't know if it was in the Iliad or in the, before the Iliad, in the mythology, to hide from his enemies.
0: Yeah, and, and also Achilles and Patroclus were... Of roughly a similar social status. Like, they were both princes.
1: And they they also started, they were roughly the same age. I don't think one was 45 and one was 15, you know?
0: <laughs> they probably started when they were very young. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. But they, as far as I know, they were about the same age.
1: And their relationship grows. It grows through 10 years, which neither of them at the end of 10 years would be considered boys anymore.
0: Yeah. So Erastes eromenos relationships with a clear, dominant, and submissive partner were seen as kind of hetero in ancient Greece, is my is, is my take on this. But same sex relationships where it wasn't clear who was dominant, or relationships where the more masculine presenting one was the one who got penetrated, relationships where both men were around the same age and social status, those were queer, and they were sometimes seen as perverse. It could wreck a man's reputation if he was known to be in one, especially if he was the masculine presenting, dominant looking one, maybe the older one who let himself be penetrated. That was true in both Greece and Rome. And these charges crop up when somebody wants to ruin somebody else's public career. For example, it happened to Julius Caesar when he was like 19, people said that he slept with King Nicomedes of Bithynia. And it was very clear that they were saying he was the penetratee there. And that, that rumor would be enough to like wreck his life. I don't think it really took hold. But that was definitely like a smear campaign to say that.
1: They tried. And I think Julius Caesar, much like Achilles, was kind of like Julius Caesar going to Julius Caesar.
0: In that time, he was really, you know, insulted and bothered by that rumor. He did not like the rumor.
1: Oh, no, he, he was fine with the bald adulterer, but he was not fine with that rumor.
0: As the bald adulterer, he's the one being dominant there.
1: He's the penetrator.
0: The penetrator. So, <laughs> boys who were passive partners to adult men were not stigmatized when they grew up, necessarily. If they were sex workers or enslaved people, they were. And that's, you know, something we go over in more detail in our sex worker episodes. But as older men, they were supposed to outgrow their erastes eromenos relationships, If they continued to have same-sex relationships in adulthood, they were supposed to pursue boys, not men, or at the very least much younger men, and they were expected to switch to the dominant role. If they didn't, if they still took the passive role in sex and slept with men seen as more quote-unquote masculine or quote-unquote dominant than they were, that was stigmatized in both ancient Greece and Rome. It was seen as highly subversive.
1: And that brings us nicely to women having sex with women in the ancient world. One reason it may have been invisible is that the ancient Greeks wouldn't have seen that as sex. Sex required a penis, according to the ancient Greeks. Like... Someone had to be the penetrator. How were two people without a single penis between them ever going to manage to have a penetrator and a penetratee? Was that even sex? I don't know. My brain is exploding.
0: (laughs) The worshippers of Aphrodite would like a word about women being able to have penises.
1: Exactly. And of course women could have sex without needing a penis. This is just how the ancient Greeks may have seen it and why the ancient Greek writers so often did not talk about women having sex with women. If there was no penis, then how could there be a dominant partner? How can we tell who's penetrating if no one is penetrated at all with a dick? How do we know?
0: How do we know who is the penetrator?
1: Here's the thing. This isn't to say that the Greeks and Romans didn't have dildos, because They did. They were made of leather, and they were sometimes made of bread, which I have talked about before, and I am not okay with a bread dildo, because you might get crumbs up in there and then mice in your lady palace, and that does not seem like a good idea.
0: I feel like in the ancient world, people were living under very different conditions than we do. They didn't have access to silicone. They might have had to just make do with whatever was around the house. I would be absolutely concerned about mice in the lady palace, as well as yeast infections, because bread is... Yeast.
1: Why would you not just use your fingers? Anyway, I want to move on from this before I get like too ranty. (laughs) We're moving on. Just a fun fact. The leather dildos were used with olive oil as a lube because of course they used olive oil. Literally, the trees, the olives, it's there.
0: I mean, the whole world was lubed up by olive oil. It wouldn't function without olive oil.
1: In the ancient Mediterranean, no, it would not. So there were even images of women with strap-ons in religious ceremonies in ancient Egypt. And no doubt ancient Greek women saw this. They learned. They might have already known about this from their own stuff.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, trans women existed and Aphroditos was there. But the sense I'm getting here is that people who use non-penis body parts or objects or sex aids to penetrate, especially women penetrating other women, would have, to the ancient Greek and Roman men, just been proving their point. It may have been seen as unnatural and proof that to really have sex, you need a penis. See, if you don't have a penis, you have to simulate one. Another factor that may have rendered queer female relationships invisible was how the ancient Greeks saw women's sexuality within the context of marriage. Women's sexuality in ancient Greece was highly constrained, and who women had sex with was not exactly a private matter. Their sexuality was supposed to be harnessed for the good of the state and the family. Meaning it was their job to marry men their family picked for them and have babies with that person for the good of the family and the state. The only place they were allowed to express their sexuality was in the context of marriage.
1: They were not supposed to go off seeking their own pleasure because that destabilized the family. And what destabilized the family? Destabilized the society as a whole. And we did a Patreon episode on the punishments inflicted on women who committed adultery. And these punishments varied. On the less severe end, this involved public shaming. On the more severe end, women who committed adultery might be expelled from their communities, or their neighbors might be allowed to commit violence against them. Anything that didn't kill them. If a man caught his wife with another man and killed her in a jealous rage, people look the other way. This was a justified killing. And we've got a Patreon episode called Mythological Ways to Die in the Arena, and we've got a section that a woman committed adultery, and she is killed in front of the entire arena in a recreation of the pacife bull moment from the Minotaur myth.
0: It's pretty terrible. If you want to hear more about that, sign up to our Patreon at the $5 level. And those are like weird examples because I don't think that that was the usual punishment, but it does kind of show that that was a punishment.
1: No, that, that was not the usual punishment. That was making a spectacle of whatever this woman did, people were real pissed about it.
0: Yeah, um, in Against Nira, a real prosecutorial speech from a real trial of a sex worker in classical Athens, which we've talked about at length in our sex worker episodes and our adultery episode on our Patreon, here's how the prosecutor defined the accepted consequences for adultery for women. So he's, he's basically saying this is what we do to women who commit adultery here. Quote, it is to these women alone, women who commit adultery, that the law denies entrance to our public sacrifices. And if they do attend them and defy the law, any person whatsoever may at will inflict upon them any sort of punishment, save only death, and that with impunity. And the law has given the right of punishing these women to any person who happens to meet with them. It is for this reason that the law has declared that such a woman may suffer any outrage short of death without the right of seeking redress before any tribunal whatsoever, And that our sanctuaries may be kept free from all pollution and profanation, and that our women may be inspired with a fear sufficient to make them live soberly and avoid all vice, and, as their duty is, to keep to their household tasks. For it teaches them that if a woman is guilty of any such sin, she will be an outcast from her husband's home and from the sanctuaries of the city. I mean... They're basically enforcing women to stay faithful and stay in the home and do housekeeping out of fear. To be honest, this
1: then goes through the Middle Ages and everything else. Like, eventually, it, first it started with the state and then it moved into the religion, which was then very tied to the state as we go through history.
0: It's real dark. It's real dark and it and it's also just, you know, all the, the incredible effort. To control women's sexuality and make sure that she does not sleep with anyone except her husband ever because she's terrified of these consequences.
1: Yeah, because sleeping with someone who isn't your husband could result in children who are yours and not your husband's.
0: It's destabilizing. And, and of course, the more children you have with people not your husband, the more the husband isn't going to feel invested in the family. And the more the family unit breaks down, according to the theory.
1: It's super destabilizing. This makes no sort of like understanding of open marriages or throuples or like other couples.
0: Oh, no, no, no. Men can have multiple wives. Let's be clear. I mean,
1: (laughs) sure. But a woman, a woman can't have, you know, their needs met by someone else ever, ever,
0: ever. Women aren't even supposed to have needs outside of husband and family.
1: Well, that's not true, because we're going to get to it, but the ancient Romans believed that you had to orgasm in order to conceive, so...
0: Well, that's all about conception, and you're supposed to orgasm with your husband alone.
1: Exactly, but what if you can't, and you still need to conceive this baby?
0: I don't know, you just have to fake it, Jen. I I hear that was what was going on anyway, so we'll get to that.
1: (laughs) Can you conceive if you're faking it? I don't know, ask the ancient Romans. Anyway, dire things happened to women who expressed their sexuality outside of marriage, family, and childbearing. Women's sexuality was not really seen as their own, and the fact that women, or rather girls, in ancient Greece and Rome were often married off at the age of 14, sometimes younger, to men in their 40s and 50s, and particularly in ancient Greece, That might mean their uncle, their uncle-husband.
0: No, really, they would sometimes get married to their uncles. I think we go into that in more detail in one of our Amazon episodes.
1: Yeah. And this tells us that these girls probably were not usually that keen on expressing their sexuality in marriage, let's be honest, right? No! Ugh. So this paints a grim picture. This isn't to say that no women ever had consensual or good heterosex or even married for love. I mean, it, it happened. The ancient Greeks also believed that women were the more sexually insatiable gender, constantly wanting sex. I mean, probably they constantly want good sex and they're not getting it.
0: It's all about lust. Lust.
1: In the play Lysistrata by Aristophanes, where women decide to withhold sex from their husbands so they'll stop making war, This is depicted as being just as hard for women as the men. And the ancient Romans, as we mentioned, believed that women had to experience orgasm to be able to conceive. So there must have been some pleasure in sex for women or, as Jenny mentioned, quite a lot of faking it.
0: But the fact remains that men were allowed to express their sexuality outside of marriage and women were not. Adultery was seen as a crime for both men and women, but there were ways men could have sex outside marriage that weren't categorized as adultery. For instance, having an erastes eromenos relationship, having sex with enslaved people, or sex workers. Or enslaved sex workers. There were no such acceptable outlets for women. Even in the Lysistrata, these insatiable women were supposed to have sex with their husbands, and that was it. Women's sexual agency was supposed to be funneled toward making babies for the family, but also for the state, which needed a good supply of warriors to keep their armies populated.
1: It needed warriors, but it also needed every aspect of society, right? It needed more wives and mothers. It needed more priests and the religious orders. Like, they needed people. Without people, they couldn't have a society. But mostly army.
0: But if a woman had sex with a woman, what purpose did that serve? What does it serve, Jenny? Like, what? What do two women get out of that? What men's needs are being met here, we don't understand. No children were produced. No state or family interests were served. This was purely for women's pleasure, which probably, again, broke the ancient Greek and Roman men's minds a little bit. Women having sex for their own pleasure and nobody else's purposes? Was that sex? It was definitely not allowed, and we do not approve. Oh, I'm clutching my pearls! Somebody fetch the smelling salts! (laughs) So, there are
1: a lot more queer men than women depicted in ancient Greek mythology. Mostly, there's a lot more stories about men, and that probably has a lot to do with who was telling the story. But, there are some hints of queer women in the mythology. Here's two myths that we're going to bring you that give us a glimpse into sex between women in ancient Greece, and how the Greeks perceived it. The first is Callisto and Artemis. And we told the story already in our Werewolves of Wolf Mountain episode, but we're going to touch on it again. In that version, we focused on the part where someone gets transformed into a wolf and a bear. We were looking at a different sort of lens for the story. But in this telling, we want to focus on the queerness of this story. Callisto was the daughter of Lycaon, a king of Arcadia, but she had little love of palace life. Instead, she spent her days in the forest, hunting with the goddess Artemis.
0: Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt.
1: Well, not just the hunt. She was the goddess of, like, wildness, the wilderness, hunting. Sometimes she's linked to the moon. Like, it's all these, like, deep, dark, primal, feminine sort of, like, mysteries.
0: She was also notoriously a virgin which is a little hard to believe based on what jen just said (laughs) she would visit dire consequences on any men who came upon her bathing with her nymph companions whom she was always taking steamy baths with
1: she found the hottest of hot springs and everything got soapy and wet
0: and she brought the hottest of hot nymphs into those hot springs with her and things got soapy and wet as jen says Callisto was a devotee and a favored companion of Artemis. They were extremely close, and they took a lot of baths together. Hmm.
1: They were women who lived in the wild, who respected animals, who respected nature, and who were accomplished hunters. So very different from how most women in ancient Greece would have been perceived, particularly classical Athens.
0: So one day, Zeus, who was Artemis's dad, spotted Callisto and fell in lust with her.
1: Lust
0: (laughs) actually sounded like Zeus. (laughs) Lust.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I've got this. I've got some kind of cold going on, so I do have like my Eartha Kitt voices back, guys.
0: Jen's gonna whisper to you in that deep, sexy, dark voice about lust and queer women taking baths.
1: Unholy lust.
0: (laughs) So Zeus decided that he had to have her. He had to get it on with Callisto, and when Callisto refused, he disguised himself as Artemis came to her at night, and got her pregnant.
1: So it goes without saying that this is a rape story. Once again, Zeus is an utter monster who raped someone. This time by disguising himself as his own daughter because he knows no bounds. He's the worst. But we couldn't stop thinking about this. If Zeus was disguising himself as Artemis to have sex with Callisto, did he do this because he knew that Artemis and Callisto were already sleeping together? that if he came to Callisto in the form of her lover, which in this case was his daughter, she would not turn him down. Also, was he
0: watching them? He was absolutely watching them, Jen. Where do you think he got this idea?
1: So obviously, this doesn't make what he did any less rape. I think the fact that Zeus disguised himself as Artemis rather than appearing as a bird or a bull or a golden shower tells us that Callisto and Artemis were already lovers and Zeus knew it.
0: Anyway, so this horrible thing happens to Callisto and for a while she manages to keep it secret from Artemis. But obviously Zeus got her pregnant and that's kind of hard to hide. One day, Artemis sees Callisto naked in the bath and notices the baby bump. She's enraged and hurt. Who exactly was Callisto cheating on her with anyway? She's so mad that she turns Callisto into a bear according to some tellings. Or maybe she turned Callisto into a bear so she could never be raped again as an act of protection. That's Jen's theory. It's not
1: my theory. I've just seen that theory floated. It's definitely like a revisionist theory, I'd say. But it has some meat, right? Like Callisto is, is, has been raped. And as a bear, there is no God, no man are going to come up and ever do that to her again. She's got claws and teeth and that's it.
0: People can write really excellent fan fiction around that, and I'm sure it's really good. But I, I mean, I kind of see it personally as a, an attempt to reclaim Artemis and make her not quite as horrible as she was in this instance. This does show us how the patriarchy works on a really fundamental level by turning women against other women. It does, and we
1: see it a lot with Artemis and Athena who were avowed virgins, right? These are the women who had all this power and all this agency as goddesses. And they do some real shitty things to women who step out of, the, out of line according to the patriarchy.
0: Yeah, in a weird way, they were kind of patriarchy enforcers. Not everyone's going to like that interpretation, but that's just what I see in it.
1: I think that's a fair interpretation. And I think that the other interpretation is also valid because it would depend on who told the story. It would depend on if a man is telling that story, you can see the consequence lens, right? But if a mother is telling their daughter that story, like, that's a way in which... Callisto is now empowered to fight back and never be a victim again.
0: Or it could be a warning to not trust other women either.
1: Yep. Don't trust anyone.
0: So Artemis is an avowed virgin. But in this story, it does seem pretty clear to me that she and Callisto are involved. And and that does make sense in terms of how the ancient Greeks would have seen sex. Like if women are having sex with other women, they're still virgins because nobody is penetrating. Right. There's no penetrator and there's no penetratee. What is going on? They're still virgins, clearly. And it makes me wonder about other women who were quote-unquote virgins in the classical world. What about all those other avowed virgins of mythology, like Athena or Hestia? What about the Vestal virgins? They were expected to spend 30 years of their lives not having sex, but did that include sex with each other? Were all these virgins in ancient Greece and Rome just getting it on hardcore with each other and the men refused to acknowledge it? The sources, unfortunately... Don't say, but oh man, am I writing fan fiction in my head right now?
1: Well, it also just reminds me again of our guy Dionysus and his gang of Maynads, who initially maenads could only be women, and they, they ran away from their families and their communities. They chose to follow Dionysus. They definitely had orgiastic, bacchanal ceremonies that were mysteries. This was part of the mystery cult. And uh, eventually, some of the Maynads did start letting men in. But it was generally younger men. It wasn't the older, established patriarchy. So you can see how subversive that would have been.
0: Absolutely, because A, if the women are having orgies and not letting men in, which was the status quo initially, then they're having orgies with other women. And um, B, if they're only letting younger men into the cult, then it's the women acting as the Erastes in the erastes or pairing. So that would have been very subversive and threatening. And
1: also, remember, you've got Dionysus, who's the head of this cult, who is very fluid. He sometimes appears as a bearded man. Sometimes he's a young boy. Sometimes he's an animal. Sometimes he's in women's clothes. This is a god who can't be defined by any binary. And he's in charge of all of these women who are subverting the sexual and gender norms. Oh, my goodness, no. Oh, my pearls.
0: And it's weird because Dionysus is almost his own Erastes and Aramunos because he's both an older man and a youth.
1: Wait a minute. So Artemis has all these women around her and they're all younger than her and they're all maidens.
0: Well, they're all nymphs. Oh my God, she's got her
1: own Erastes Aramunos situation going on with these nymphs.
0: She does. It's like she's got an Erastes Aramunos nymph harem. No. What? Now that you know about Erastes Aramunos as being the applicable binary, you can't unsee it.
1: No, my brain is broken. I'm still thinking about this. She's got like this whole... She's got a whole... No.
0: Well, yeah, because Artemis is a goddess, so she's a much higher rank in the, I guess, supernatural hierarchy of the pantheon. Nymphs are much lower status, magical beings, and I'm assuming they're younger than her.
1: Yeah. I'm Helena Bonham Carter.
0: Available on Spotify, Pandora,
1: and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So, the second myth that we're going to talk about is Iphis and Ianthe. And this one comes to us from Ovid, the Roman poet. It's in his Metamorphoses. And it's a really interesting story. A lot of the time, Iphis and Ianthe is presented as a transgender man story. And that is also an extremely valid interpretation. In fact, we're going to look at the story again from that angle when we do an episode on transgender people in ancient Greece and Rome for our next episode. But if you look through the lens of queer women, this story also has something to tell us about how romance between women was viewed in ancient Greece. So we're going to look at it from that angle in this episode. Stay tuned for when we talk about it from the transgender angle.
0: Yeah, and it it's also applicable to intersex people, so we're going to look at it again when we do our intersex episode. This story is so interesting because it's kind of like Rashomon. Have you ever heard of that movie?
1: Nope.
0: Well, it's it's a Japanese movie. It's older. I'm not exactly sure when it dates from, but it's black and white, I think. I think it is. it is. It's an older movie. And it's about a murder, and... The story gets told several different ways from the point of view of different characters, and you can see how it changes from different people's point of view. And I kind of see Ifis and Aanthi as kind of a Rashomon story. It changes based on the point of view. It tells us something about queer women, it tells us something about transgender people, and it tells us something about intersex people. And I'm gonna look at it from all three lenses in these three episodes, it's super interesting.
1: And it's so nice to have like something in the lexicon in the stories that we can look at that is so layered and interesting because you don't always get that in ancient Greek and Roman mythology.
0: Yeah. So the story starts with a Cretan couple from Crete, Lygdis and Telethusa.
1: And remember, this is a Cretan couple, but the story is being told from an ancient Roman writer.
0: Yeah, that's right. Telethusa was pregnant and Lygdis really, really wanted it to be a boy. Quote, girls are such trouble, fair strength is denied to them. Therefore, may heaven refuse the thought, if chance should cause your child to be a girl, gods pardon me for having said the word, we must agree to have her put to death. And Telethusa did not agree. But this was ancient Greece, and women didn't really get to go against their husbands or their Kyrios. The curios’s word was law. So Lygdis got her to promise him to expose the baby at birth if it turned out to be a girl. However, one day, the goddess Isis appeared to the heartbroken Telethusa, and she told her not to listen to her husband. Go ahead and deceive him if she wanted. Lie her face off if need be. She, Isis, would see to her protection. So that's what
1: Telethusa did. She gave birth when Lygdus was out of the house and the baby was a girl. Telethusa immediately swaddled the child and told everyone that it was a boy. And Lygdis was overjoyed when he came home. He named the baby after his own father. The name was Iphis, which actually is a gender-neutral name. Interesting. And he told everyone the good news, it was a boy. For years, Telethusa kept dressing Iphis as a boy, calling the child a boy. And Iphis basically lived as a boy. Can you imagine, like, how complicated this cover-up was?
0: Yeah, it would have been really hard. Nobody could ever see this child naked, ever.
1: Well, yeah, because people were naked a lot more often. They were communally naked a lot more often. They exercised naked. Like, there was a lot of nakedness. Like, in our society today, like, we're not naked as much. So, like, from our lens, like, it's easy to think, like, oh, okay, well, they just never took their knickers off. But, like, in ancient Greek society, people did. Yeah. So, when Iphis grew up, Telethysa found her child a bride, golden-haired Ianthe, the most beautiful woman on Crete. Even better, Ianthe and Iphis had known each other since childhood, and they were already in love. It was a win-win. So as Ovid presents it, Iphis identified as a girl, even though she was living as a boy. But Ianthe was straight and thought Iphis was a cisgender boy. Of course, this isn't the only interpretation out there, but for this episode, we're going to go with how Ovid is describing it. And here's what he says: quote, "Of equal age and equal loveliness." They received from the same teachers all instruction in their childish rudiments. So unsuspected love had filled their hearts with equal longing. But how different! Ianthe waits in confidence and hope the ceremonial as agreed upon, and is quite certain she will wed a man. But Iphis is in love without one hope of passion's ecstasy, the thought of which only increased her flame, and she, a girl, is burnt with passion for another girl.
0: Iphis was in love with Ayanthe and very upset because girls did not get with other girls. They did not. Who's penetrating who? I can't. Ovid spends a lot of time going on and on about how unnatural love was between female-bodied people. Quote, Oh, what will be the awful dreaded end? With such a monstrous love compelling me, he has Iphis say. If the gods should wish to save me, certainly they should have saved me. But, if their desire was for my ruin, still, they should have given some natural suffering of humanity. The passion for a cow does not inflame a cow. No mare has ever sought another mare. The ram inflames the ewe, and every doe follows a chosen stag. So also birds are mated. And in all the animal world, no female ever feels love-passion for another female. And I just want to stop there and say, are you sure about that, Ifis? (laughs) Are you sure?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean... Based on her known understanding of the world, yes. But it's wrong, obviously.
0: Why is it in me, she goes on to say. Monstrosities are natural to Crete. The daughter of the sun there loved a bull. She's talking about Pasiphae and the bull. It was a female's mad love for the male. But my desire is far more mad than hers. If Daedalus himself should fly back here upon his waxen wings, what could he do? What skillful art of his could change my sex, a girl, into a boy? Or could he change Ianthe?
1: Could he change Ianthe?
0: Question.
1: This story ends happily. Iphis prays to the gods, and so does Telethusa. And at the last possible second, right before the marriage ceremony, the gods give Iphis a dick. I mean, Isis comes through on her promise.
0: <laughs> it's a dickus ex machina.
1: <laughs> it's a dickus ex machina in this instance.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> so... Iphys and Ianthe got married, Ianthe never found out about that last-minute genital diccus ex machina, and everyone lived happily ever after. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. One way you could interpret this story is that it's about a trans man. He's born in a body, assigned female at birth, and is a straight man, falls in love with a woman, knows she won't accept him because he's trans, and then, at the last second, the gods grant him a penis and he can get happily married. And we've seen it interpreted this way, it's absolutely valid, and it gives us a glance of trans lives in the ancient world. But we chose to include this story in this episode about queer women, because you can also interpret Iphis as a cisgender queer woman. One who doesn't identify as a man, even though everyone thinks she is one, and who knows that her beloved Ianthe will never accept a female lover. In Ovid's telling, Iphis seems to identify as a girl, and despair because girls do not, ever, get with other girls. So she prays for a penis, and she gets one.
0: When viewed from this lens, this story tells us something about how the ancient Greeks might have viewed love between women as completely impossible unless someone has a penis, and of course we are talking about cis women here. And if that's really how you see love, and you happen to be a cisgender, queer woman in love with another woman, then yeah, you might pray to the gods for a penis just so you can be with the woman you love, even if you don't necessarily identify as a man yourself. It also shows us how terrifying and disorienting it must have been for a young girl in this time period to realize that she has feelings for another woman. Without stories, mythology, a cultural context, these desires must have been extremely frightening and isolating. Ifis describes herself as monstrous. Christine Downing, in her article Lesbian Mythology, puts it like this, quote, from Ovid's perspective, the story ends happily. From mine, it reveals how without stories, without models, A woman's discovery that she loves another woman may be bewildering and frightening. The myth recognizes the love the two girls feel for one another and shows the confusion this engenders in Iphis, who does not know that women have ever before been drawn to women. She cannot imagine how such a love might be lived out except by her becoming a man, being given a penis. The desire is acknowledged, but not the possibility of fulfillment. So, seen this way, the story of Iphis and Ianthe illustrates the way the ancient Greeks isolated and erased girls with same-sex attraction. Boys got all kinds of stories and myths and legends and heroes that involved same-sex attraction. Girls got nothing. And it's hard not to see this as being about anything except for control of women's sexuality, blocking off every other outlet except for husband and family. This lack of story to show queer women that their desire was normal, even epic, with its own lexicon of mythology, was nothing less than an act of erasure of a huge aspect of women's humanity in the service of husband, family, and state.
1: The ancient Romans also saw sex the way the Greeks did, that it didn't really exist if no penis was involved. In ancient Roman society, to be a man, a real man, meant that you were always the penetrator and never the penetratee. They were really militant about this, even more so than the Greeks. To them, sex was all about domination. And that sounds not that appealing, guys.
0: It sounds really grim, right? Like, it's... Yeah, like, I mean,
1: sometimes it's fun, but like, always?
0: I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. It obviously can be fun to be dominated. But if that's all that sex is all the time, it's like, God, boring. Yeah. Anyway...
1: Of course, the Romans probably also believed that sex between women wasn't possible because nobody had a penis.
0: And yet again, just want to add, the worshippers of Aphrodite would like a word.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but they did believe that there was a way a woman could penetrate a man. And no, we're not talking about pegging here.
0: Uh, We should be, but we're not.
1: (laughs) We should be, but that's not what we're talking about. And the Romans saw this act as perhaps the most transgressive and shameful sex act a man could do. In the article, A Comparison of Ancient Roman and Greek Norms Regarding Sexuality and Gender, by Cody Getting, who describes Roman concept of manhood as, quote, the impenetrable penetrator.
0: The impenetrable penetrator.
1: (laughs) The author also describes how oral sex was seen as unclean and degrading in ancient Rome, specifically for the giver. This was especially true for cunnilingus.
0: And, And I remember reading this and just being like, what the hell am I reading? What is this? So I had to put it in here. When anyone, I'm going to just break this down for you. When anyone, man or woman in ancient Rome, went down on another woman, the belief was that the receiver of the cunnilingus was penetrating the giver.
1: Do you think that's because of the pleasure aspect?
0: Maybe? Like someone getting pleasure out of a sex act that someone is doing for you that makes you the dominator? Huh. Huh. I haven't seen anyone talk about it like that, but maybe there's an aspect of it. Although women were supposed to have orgasms when they had sex with men, which didn't make them the penetrator. But then again, those were probably, uh, my extremely informed theory on this is that those were mostly faked.
1: (laughs) They were mostly faked and also they would have been orgasms by regular penetrative sex. You know, penis into a a vagina type sex.
0: Some of this is fan fiction, but I think it's informed fan fiction. Anyway, for men, going down on a woman was seen as like 10 times as degrading as being penetrated by another man because women weren't supposed to penetrate at all. Women were seen as the automatic passive partner because of our gender and biological sex. It was highly, highly unnatural to be penetrated by a woman. Only men penetrated. They were the impenetrable penetrators. This was what made them men, according to the ancient Romans. And this is why in the Greco-Roman world, Accounts of women having sex with women so often involve somebody getting a penis. The Romans were
1: extra appalled by the idea of a woman going down and being penetrated by another woman. It was unnatural because women weren't supposed to penetrate. If a woman did penetrate someone else, that would make her roughly equal to a man? A penetrator? Which was completely beyond the pale. They had to maintain the fiction that men were superior to women for their patriarchal society to function. The act of going down on women, especially women going down on women, was a direct threat to the patriarchy. If women didn't need men to get penetrated, if, in fact, women could penetrate themselves, then what even were men? (laughs) What were they for?
0: And I think, like, the broader thing here is that men in ancient Rome were so threatened by the idea of women going down on women that it made them have, like, a gender identity crisis of their own.
1: Absolutely. I mean, again, you can see why the erasure was necessary, right? Because, like. You can't have something floating around society that says, like, this is OK. This is not OK.
0: If gender is a social construct and we can easily see that it is here because the way that the ancient Greeks and Roman constructed male gender specifically depended on all of this stuff, then, of course, you have to erase everything in your culture that challenges. It was a form of societal control that they've built their society around. So women going down on women threaten men's status as the only penetrator around. It threatened married men's status as the only sexual outlet for their wives. And it threatened the family itself, as it provided a sexual outlet for women that was purely for pleasure, not for making babies. Women willing to have sex outside of marriage might walk out of their husbands' lives forever, eschew family life entirely, because they didn't need their husbands to be penetrated. They didn't need their husbands for pleasure. They didn't need men at all. And that would be the undoing of society as a whole.
1: So that's the mythology. But you can also see queer women, albeit very rarely, throughout history. Plutarch, in his Life of Lycurgus, talks about pederastic relationships between boys and men in Sparta. He describes how a boy's older male lover was considered socially responsible for him, shared in his honors and successes, and shared in his disgraces if the boy failed or misbehaved. He even talks about how one time, when a boy... Quote, Let an ungenerous cry escape him while he was fighting, End quote. the magistrates find his older male lover.
0: Plutarch also says that in Sparta, girls and women had a similar Erastes eromenos tradition. Quote, Moreover, though this sort of love was so approved among them that even the maidens found lovers in good and noble women, still there was no jealous rivalry in it. In his symposium, Plato explores the nature of love as well, and at one point he posits that the gods separated each person to have an other half. It's kind of wild, Plato's take on love.
1: This is Plato's weird soulmate theory.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot more complicated than what I'm just showing you here. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. I just want to show you this one slice of it. Here's what he says. Quote, each of us, when separated, having one side only, like a flat fish. (laughs) I love that part. It's like a flounder, really. Really? is but the indenture of a man, and he is always looking for his other half. Men, who are a section of that double nature which was once called androgynous, are lovers of women. And I think that's really interesting that he's calling hetero men androgynous. Adulterers are generally of this breed, and also adulterous women who lust after men. The women, who are a section of the woman, do not care for men but have female attachments. The female companions are of this sort. So... That's Plutarch and Plato both acknowledging the existence of queer women. I mean, it it isn't a lot to go on, but it's not nothing.
1: Of course, we can't talk about queer women in ancient history without talking about Sappho. Sappho's poetry is brimming with erotic feelings about women. But except for her attraction to women, we know next to nothing about Sappho's life. And even that part of her life has been straightwashed for centuries. We talked about Sappho and her life in our most recent episode with Lisa Charlotte from Sweet Bitter. If you listen to that episode, you'll know that what little information we have about Sappho's life is very fragmentary. We know she lived on the island of Lesbos from around the 600s BC, and that she was probably from an aristocratic family. We know she had three brothers. We know that at one point, her family had to go into exile in Sicily because of some power struggle among the elite families in her region. But eventually, they were allowed to return.
0: Some scholars suggest that one reason why same-sex relationships between women was so invisible to the ancient Greeks and Romans was that it lacked the erastes eromenos dynamic, the dominant submissive binary, that characterized both hetero and homosexual male relationships in their culture. However, some interpretations suggest that Sappho did seem to like them young, a younger woman, Sappho mentions in one of her poems, might have been a daughter, but she might also have been a young lover. It's a little unclear. Scholars in the past have suggested that Sappho might have been an instructor at a thesos, or theasos, a religious and educational school for girls, specifically one that worshipped Aphrodite. Scholars point to Sappho's imagery of flowers, incense, altars, perfumes sprinkled on bodies and hair, and other things as elements of Aphrodite's worship to prove it.
1: So that connection is kind of tenuous. Although, yes, Aphrodite was associated with flowers and self-adornment and beautiful things, we aren't 100% sure how Aphrodite was worshipped, except in processions, because remember, mystery cults, they stay mysterious. What happens in the mystery cult stays in the mystery cult.
0: Yeah, and this idea that Sappho was like a teacher at some kind of a school, and that's where she got her student lovers from, it's something that I see repeated in various places sometimes. And I don't believe Lisa Charlotte mentioned it in our episode on Sappho. And if it was true, she probably would have mentioned it. But I felt like I wanted to kind of delve into that more and find out where this theory came from, because it would tell us something about Sappho and her life.
1: However, the suggestion that Sappho was a teacher at a theasis was originally put forth by a gentleman scholar who wanted to find some platonic reason for Sappho's unbridled passion for these young women. It was, as far as we can tell, a form of straightwashing. If Sappho was a teacher, though, and her young charges were her lovers as well as students, that would be pretty on point for how the ancient Greeks viewed love. She could be the dominant partner, the Erastes in the erastes Romanos pairing. But there's not much evidence to suggest that this was actually the case. I think it was just fan fiction.
0: However, Sappho wasn't the only writer in her time writing about erotic love between women. There was another writer, Alkman. Alkman was a man. He probably lived around Sappho's time, so in the 600s BC. No one really knows where he was from. Accounts vary. He might have been from somewhere in Europe or Asia. Very broad swath of territory. Oh yeah, just a
1: huge portion of the world, but you know...
0: Aristotle reports that he died from a pustule-ridden lice infection. If someone's dying from a pustule-ridden lice infection, I have to tell you about it. Even if it's not on topic. Pausanias tells us that he was buried in Sparta, right next to Helen of Troy, which was a fact I thought Jen would appreciate.
1: I do appreciate.
0: Anyway, so take all of this with a grain of salt. Make of it what you will.
1: Alchemon wrote hymns called Parthenaea, or maiden songs, in the Doric dialect. This was a dialect of ancient Greek from Sparta. These were lyric hymns sung by choruses of young, unmarried girls at religious festivals. Alckmin wrote six books of choral hymns, but most of these have been lost. We only have small fragments today.
0: Here's a quote from one of the fragments. Quote, for abundance of purple is not sufficient for protection, nor intricate snake of solid gold, no, nor Lydian headband, pride of dark-eyed girls, nor the hair of nano, nor, again, godlike Areta, nor Thylacus and Cleosithera, nor will you go to Anisembrotas and say, if only Astaphis were mine, if only Philila were to look my way, and Damarita and lovely Ianthemus. No, Hagisicora guards me. I were to see whether perchance she were to love me. If only she came nearer and took my soft hand, immediately I would become her suppliant. So it's a little hard to make sense of, and it's not clear who these girls are that are named in this hymn, who these names are. I don't believe they're goddesses. Some scholars believe these were choral leaders, these names, or teachers, which would preserve the Erastes and Romano's pairing of dominance and submissiveness, making these recognizable love poems to a Greek audience. Scholars have also suggested that the word guards here, as in Hagosikora guards me, can also be translated much more sexily as, wears me out with love.
1: Yeah, and also, how young are we talking?
0: Well, I mean, considering that they often married at puberty. Well,
1: that's what I'm saying. Like, these are very young girls singing potentially very sexy songs. Right. So, aside from the works of Sappho, those are the glimpses we have about queer women in the ancient world. The picture is very obscure because of who told the stories, men who didn't believe that sex existed without dominance, without unequal power dynamics, and without a penis. Even worse, they believed that the existence of sex between women threatened their status as men, as the impenetrable penetrators.
0: Penetrators.
1: I love the way you say that. But queer women were there. They were always there, getting it on right under the noses of their curios. And maybe men would have realized it if their fragile masculinity would have let them acknowledge what was really going on. But it didn't, so they averted their eyes and pretended what was happening under their nose just wasn't happening. And since men were the ones who wrote things down, their stories didn't come down to us today.
0: Except, of course, in the writings of Sappho. In a world where queer women's voices were silenced and hidden, Sappho spoke out loudly and musically about her love of women, and that's why her voice is so treasured and so important today.
1: So that's it for this week. Join us next week for a new episode. In the meantime, catch up with us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. And if you like what we do, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us.
0: And consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash Fangirl. We have some patron members to thank today.
1: We do. Thank you so much to Tanya Bergen,
0: Alyssa Jensen,
1: Daphne Garrison,
0: Kate Simkiewicz,
1: Patrick DeWind,
0: Mariah Klan,
1: Anne Fesherak,
0: Anne Hitzrat,
1: and Kelly Black.
0: Thank you so much, and we will see you next week.